podcasting time. I am just another jerk with a podcast, and this podcast is about Japan. Of course, I am your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Please subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. Rate the show, give it a review, and share it, please. Sharing is the best way to support this podcast. Get the word out there so people can learn about insane leftists, killer bears, snowy death marches. Hmm, okay, yeah, so maybe a little dark sometimes, but I promise there are some happy episodes, and today's is, I think today's is a fairly happy episode, I guess. Now, before we get into the actual story today, I just want to take real, 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 just a real short minute here and talk about why don't I usually cover topics from this era of Japanese history? Now, this era, of course, World War II. I don't really talk about World War II ever. Why not? Well, mostly because it's been done over and over and over. I mean, traditionally, I mean, all these are in scare quotes here, traditionally, history, at least as it's usually taught in schools, is about war and famous men, because it's always about, it's always men, of course, okay? And World War II is the war, right? So talking about World War II stuff, it's kind of played out. Um, and, you know, other much more knowledgeable people, people who are specialists in World War II history, they've covered pretty much all of the topics. Not everything, but they've covered most everything and done it much better than I ever could. That being said, every once in a while, I come across a story from World War II that is not so well known, and it's not horrible and bleh. And I think those stories are worth covering. Oh, and yeah, and, and horrible, terrible, bleh stories, sad stories, those are obviously not, you know, I have no qualms in covering those stories. I mean, killer bears, uh, death marches, massacres. Yeah, I mean, I got those things covered. It's just horrible, terrible World War II stories, I like to eschew those. But, yeah, today's story, despite being from World War II, is not a terrible, horrible, sad story. So, let's have at it. It's September 9th, 1942. A Japanese submarine off the coast of Oregon in the U.S. surfaces and soldiers ready the airplane from its hangar. And then this, this is one of those things that I remember learning at some point, but it always surprises and amazes me a little bit every time I come across it again. Submarines with airplane hangars built into them. I mean, just, that's kind of crazy in and of itself. But anyway, that's involved in our story. So yeah, this submarine opens the surfaces, opens the hangar, and a, yeah, a small two-man float plane, and so that's the, that's the kind of seaplane with the two pontoons in place of the landing gear, right? So the small float plane is readied, and the pilot, Fujita Nobuo, 
climbs in along with his second-in-command, Okuda Shoji. And with two thermite incendiary bombs loaded, they take off. Their target? The forests on the slopes of Mount Emily, a small, smallish mountain in the southwestern part of Oregon, not too far from the California, uh, the California-Oregon border. The goal of the mission? To start a forest fire. Due to recent rains, because it is the Pacific Northwest, after all, the bombs are unable to start much of a fire. You know, a few small fires are started, but they are spotted quickly by Raz Gardner, who was a forest ranger in a lookout tower on Mount Emily. So Raz and his partner, Bob Larson, another forest ranger, they rush to the location, and working through the night, they're able to contain the fire until a full fire crew arrives on the scene, and they're able to completely put out the small fire. And that was the first and only one of two aerial uh, bombings, like airplane bombings, of the continental U.S. during World War II. I think maybe, or maybe it's contiguous U.S. Yeah, because there were some bombings in, in, in Alaska, which I guess is technically continental U.S., but whatever, of the contiguous U.S. So the second bombing, incidentally, was almost identical um, it was another bombing run. It was carried out in late September, um, also by the pilot Fujita Nobuo. And again, not much came of that raid either. Now, Fujito Nobuo, he was a 30-year-old, a 30, maybe 31-year-old um, officer at the time of the Oregon bombings. And he had been present at Pearl Harbor though apparently he did not participate in the reconnaissance missions because his seaplane had some malfunction going on at the time. Um, but yeah, so he, he was at Pearl Harbor, didn't participate in it. And he would later go on to propose submarine-based airplane bombing runs of the west coast of the continental contiguous U.S. Now, initially, he had the idea you know, to bomb populated areas, like Los Angeles, Seattle, somewhere like that. But the float planes that were carried by the Japanese submarines, they were only capable of speeds of like 90, 100 miles an hour. Far too slow to fly over populated areas with active defenses. So the attempts at starting forest fires were brainstormed. The goal was to start a forest fire and divert resources Apparently. At least that's what I was reading. Now, Japan would later try to use the incendiary bombs attached to balloons later on um, with only extremely limited effectiveness. Now, years later, the site of the bombing was discovered. This tiny little crater was found in the woods. And this being, you know, Oregon being the Pacific Northwest, how did they commemorate it? They renamed a hiking trail. Because, of course, they did. Um, so the hiking trail was renamed to the Wheeler Ridge Japanese Bombing Site Trail. Pretty on the nose with that one. But that is not all there is to this story. 
Now, the town of, I think it's Brookings, Oregon, which is the town that was nearest the bombing site, Brookings has an Azalea Festival every year. And in 1962, some members of the local JCs club were considering inviting Fujita Nobuo to the festival. Right? Remember Fujita, he's the guy, he was the pilot of the plane. And the J- local JCs, they considered inviting him to the festival, kind of an attempt to, you know, build bridges between former enemies, that, that type of thing. Apparently, uh, President Kennedy even congratulated the local JCs on this attempt at fostering international friendship. So, hey, cool, whatever. Um, now, obviously, being, you know, less than 20 years out from the end of the war, some members of the community were pretty strongly opposed. Uh, But in the end, the JCs invited Fujita, and he accepted the invitation. And he came with his wife and his son. Now, obviously, maybe not obviously, but not surprisingly, the visit was not without protest. Uh, people were still pretty upset about the war, and, you know, I can't blame them, um, right? Because, you know, this was a serious World War II. It's one of the, you know, if not the, one of the big, like the biggest war ever, um, you know, and Japan was a mortal enemy. A lot of the citizens of the town, a lot of the young men in the town had fought in the war, many of them in the Asian, you know, in, in the Pacific theater. So they weren't really all that happy. And there was an op-ed in the local paper signed by 100 residents. And part of the text said, Why stop with Fujita? Why not assemble the ashes of Judas Iscariot, the corpse of Attila the Hun, a shovel full of dirt from the spot where Hitler died? A little over the top, um... You know, but yeah, so so there was protest. But Fujita did come, you know, and with him, he brought his most prized possession. Well, I don't know if his most, it was a very, certainly a prized possession. A 400-year-old samurai sword, presumably something handed down for generations in his family. And he told the hosts, he told the people in, in Oregon that, he had carried this sword with him on all his missions during the war. What was his purpose for bringing the sword to Oregon in 1962? It's a little bit complicated. So he actually had he had two ideas about what he was going to do with it, depending on the reception he faced. If it went well, he'd do this. If it didn't go well, he'd do this. So which should we talk about first? Should we talk about the one that he didn't go with? Should I think that I think that's the better way to go. Let's talk about what he had planned to do if he had received a n- not a nice reception. So, like I said, no sense in burying it. Years later, Fujita told interviewers that had he faced an outright hostile reception in Oregon, he was prepared to commit ritual suicide using the sword, which, yeah, I mean, kind of sounds extreme, but reading about this guy, he really does seem 
he did, I should say. He, he obviously he's passed away since, since since the time, but he really did seem to have regrets about the role that he played in the war, even if it was a fairly small one. And you know, this th- th- that sort of action, the ritual suicide definitely does not seem out of character, out of question for a guy like him. But thankfully, he was greeted by a very warm reception by most of the people in the community. Obviously, not everyone, but by and large, a very warm reception. Um, He apparently took a flight over the site of his 1942 uh, bombing run, and the pilot even let you know, gave him the chance to fly the plane over the exact spot where he had dropped the bomb, you know, two decades prior. And apparently during the celebration, someone had bagpipes and he got a chance to, you know, try his hand at playing the bagpipes. Um, something that is most Japanese people probably have never ever had a chance to do because you don't see a lot of bagpipes in Japan. Uh, I'll say that now. And, yeah, because most of the citizens of Brookings welcomed him warmly, he presented the city with his family's sword, this 400-year-old samurai sword. He presented it to the city. And apparently, if you're in the area down there in southwest Oregon, if you go to the Chetco Community Library, you can see Fujita Nobuo's sword, apparently. So, there you go. Later in his life, Fujita would sponsor exchange trips to Japan for three young people from Oregon. It took a longer it took a lot longer than he had hoped, but he had a company that went bankrupt and so there were some financial issues, but he came through and he brought three young people from Oregon over to visit Japan. You know, and as he was in the hospital at the very end of his life, the town of Brookings, the city of Brookings, made him an honorary citizen days before he died. You know, despite his involvement in the war, it was pretty clear that Fujita felt remorse at his role and seems to have done all he could to make amends for that role, right? Even if it was, you know, it was a minor role in the war. And the town nearest to where he dropped his bombs seems to have been very open to his change. And there, there you go. That's a happy story. You know, so like I say, I do tell happy stories from time to time, right? No one died. Nothing really horrible happened. Yes, it was in the context of a bigger, uh, horrible thing that was going on. And yes, starting, trying to start a forest fire, not cool, but it didn't work. And at least one man seems to have wanted to atone for his actions. I'm not reading a news story about it. There's a story about the the, per, the 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 leader of the JCs. The Fujita family stayed at his family at the start of, of their visit, and the, his wife was saying that their their son was sitting on Fujita's wife's lap, looking at a book with pictures of animals, and they were just being humans, right? Teaching each other how to say the animals' names in their own languages. So you know, they were trying to just connect, and you know, like I say. A fairly happy story for this podcast, right? And on this podcast, that is about as feel-good a story as you're going to get. So, enjoy it. And that is where I will leave it today. 
Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. Uh, it's available on most major platforms. Uh, I know it's on Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Amazon. If you're an Amazon subscriber, you know, Amazon Prime, you can get it there. Or even, I don't think you don't even need to be subscribed. You can just download it for free from Amazon. You know, it's in a lot of places. If it's not where you like to listen to podcasts, let me know, and I will look into it. You can find the Twitter for the podcast at JustAnotherCast. You can send an email to JustAnotherJerkPodcast at gmail.com. And you can find all the information as well as some other stuff on the website, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. Over there, you have some, not all, but I'm working on getting more of the transcripts. Well, not, they're not transcripts, they're scripts. Up. So if you have, if you know people who, you know, have some hearing difficulties and want to read the podcast, send them over there too. And that is all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.